Chapter Four of She and Alan. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Lars Rolander. She and Alan by H. Ryder Haggard. Chapter Four The Lion and the Axe. Next day early, I left the town of the people of the Axe, having bid a formal farewell to Umslopogaas, saying in a voice that all could hear that as the rivers were still flooded, I proposed to trek to the northern parts of Zululand and trade there until the weather was better. Our private arrangement, however, was that on the night of the next full moon, which happened about four weeks later, we should meet at the eastern foot of a certain great flat-topped mountain, known to both of us, which stands to the north of Zululand, but well beyond its borders. So northward I trekked, slowly to spare my oxen, trading as I went. The details do not matter, but as it happened I met with more luck upon that journey than had come my way for many a long year. Although I worked on credit since nearly all my goods were sold, as owing to my repute I could always do in Zululand. I made some excellent bargains in cattle, and to top up with, bought a large lot of ivory so cheap that really I think it must have been stolen. All of this, cattle and ivory together, I sent to Natal in charge of a white friend of mine, whom I could trust, where the stuff was sold very well indeed, and the proceeds paid to my account, the trade equivalents being duly remitted to the native vendors. In fact, my good fortune was such that if I had been superstitious like Hans, I should have been inclined to attribute it to the influence of Sikali's great medicine. As it was, I knew it to be one of the chances of a trader's life, and accepted it with a shrug as often as I had been accustomed to do, in the alternative of losses. Only one untoward incident happened to me. Of a sudden party of the king's soldiers, under the command of a well-known Induna, or councillor, arrived, and insisted upon searching my wagon, as I thought at first in connection with that cheap lot of ivory which had already departed to Natal. However, never a word did they say of ivory, nor indeed was a single thing belonging to me taken by them. I was very indignant and expressed my feelings to the Induna in no measured terms. He on his part was most apologetic and explained that what he did he was obliged to do by the king's orders. Also he let it slip that he was seeking for a certain evildoer who it was thought might be with me without my knowing his real character, and as this evildoer, whose name he would not mention, was a very fierce man, it had been necessary to bring a strong guard with him. Now I bethought me of Umslopogas, but merely looked blank and shrugged my shoulders, saying that I was not in the habit of consorting with evildoers. Still unsatisfied, the Induna questioned me as to the places where I had been during this journey of mine in the Zulu country. I told him with the utmost frankness, mentioning, among others, because I was sure that already he knew all my movements well, the town of the people of the Axe. 
Then he asked me if I had seen its chief, a certain Umslopogaas, or Bolalio. I answered yes, that I had met him there for the first time, and thought him a very remarkable man. With this the Induna agreed emphatically, saying that perhaps I did not know how remarkable. Next he asked me where he was now, to which I replied that I had not the faintest idea, but I presumed in his kraal where I had left him. The Induna explained that he was not in his kraal, that he had gone away leaving one Lusta and his own head-wife Monasi to administer the chieftainship for a while, because, as he stated, he wished to make a journey. I yawned as if weary of the subject of this chief, and indeed of the whole business. Then the Induna said that I must come to the king and repeat to him all the words that I had spoken. I replied that I could not possibly do so, as, having finished my trading, I had arranged to go north to shoot elephants. He answered that elephants lived a long while, and would not die while I was visiting the king. Then followed an argument which grew heated, and ended in his declaring that to the king I must come, even if he had to take me there by force. I sat silent, wondering what to say or do, and leant forward to pick a piece of wood out of the fire wherewith to light my pipe. Now my shirt was not buttoned, and as it chanced this action caused the ivory image of Sikali that hung about my neck to appear between its edges. The Induna saw it, and his eyes grew big with fear. "'Hide that!' he whispered. "'Hide that, lest it should bewitch me. Indeed, already I feel as though I were being bewitched. It is the great medicine itself.' "'That will certainly happen to you,' I said, yawning again, "'if you insist upon my taking a week's trek to visit the Black One, or interfere with me in any way, now or afterwards.' and I lifted my hand towards the talisman, looking him steadily in the face. "'Perhaps, after all, Makumazan, it is not necessary for you to visit the king,' he said in an uncertain voice. "'I will go and make report to him that you know nothing of this evildoer.' And he went in such a hurry that he never waited to say good-bye. Next morning, before the dawn, I went also, and trekked steadily until I was clear of Zululand. In due course and without accident, for the weather, which had been so wet, had now turned beautifully fine and dry, we came to the great flat-topped hill that I have mentioned, trekking thither over a high, sparsely timbered weld that offered few difficulties to the wagon. This peculiar hill, known to such natives as lived in those parts by a long word that means hut with a flat roof, is surrounded by forest, for here trees grow wonderfully well, perhaps because of the water that flows from its slopes. Forcing our way through this forest, which was full of game, I reached its eastern foot, and there camped, five days before that night of full moon, on which I had arranged to meet Umslopogaas. That I should meet him I did not in the least believe, firstly because I thought it very probable that he would have changed his mind about coming, and secondly for the excellent reason that I expected he had gone to call upon the king against his will, as I had been asked to do. It was evident to me that he was up to his eyes in some serious plot against Setiwayo, in which he was the old dwarf Sikali's partner, or rather tool. Also that his plot had been betrayed, with the result that he was wanted, and would have 
little chance of passing safely through Zululand. So, taking one thing with another, I imagined that I had seen his grim face and his peculiar ancient-looking axe for the last time. To tell the truth, I was glad. Although at first the idea had appealed to me a little, I did not want to make this wild goose or wild witch chase through unknown lands to seek for a totally fabulous person who dwelt far across the Zambesi. I had, as it were, been forced into the thing, but if Umslopogas did not appear, my obligations would be at an end, and I should return to Natal at my leisure. First, however, I would do a little shooting, since I found that a large herd of elephants haunted this forest. Indeed, I was tempted to attack them at once, but did not do so, since, as Hans pointed out, if we were going north it would be difficult to carry the ivory, especially if we had to leave the wagon, and I was too old a hunter to desire to kill the great beasts for the fun of the thing. So I just sat down and rested, letting the oxen feed throughout the hours of light on the rich grasses which grew upon the bottommost slopes of the big mountain where we were camped by a stream not more than a hundred yards above the timber line. At some time or other there had been a native village at this spot. Probably the Zulus had cleaned it out in long past years, for I found human bones black with age lying in the long grass. Indeed, the cattle kraal still remained, and in such good condition that my piling up a few stones here and there on the walls, and closing the narrow entrances with thorn bushes, we could still use it to enclose our oxen at night. This I did for fear lest there should be lions about, though I had neither seen nor heard them. So the days went by pleasantly enough, with lots to eat, since whenever we wanted meat I had only to go a few yards to shoot a fat buck at a spot whither they trekked to drink in the evening, till at last came the time of full moon. Of this I was also glad since, to tell the truth, I had begun to be bored. Rest is good, but for a man who has always led an active life, too much of it is very bad, for then he begins to think, and thought in large doses is depressing. Of the fire-eating Umslopogas there was no sign, so I made up my mind that on the morrow I would start after those elephants, and when I had shot, or failed to shoot, some of them returned to Natal. I felt unable to remain idle any more. It never was my gift to do so, which is perhaps why I employ my ample leisure here in England in jotting down such reminiscences as these. Well, the full moon came up in silver glory, and after I had taken a good look at her for luck, also at all the veld within sight, I turned in. An hour or two later some noise from the direction of the cattle kraal woke me up. As it did not recur, I thought that I would go to sleep again. Then an uneasy thought came to me that I could not remember having looked to see whether the entrance was properly closed, as it was my habit to do. It was the same sort of troublesome doubt which in a civilized house makes a man get out of bed and go along the cold passages to the sitting-room to see whether he has put out the lamp. It always proves that he has put it out, but that does not prevent a repetition of the performance next time the perplexity arises. 
I reflected that perhaps the noise was caused by the oxen pushing their way through the carelessly closed entrance, and at any rate that I had better go to see. So I slipped on my boots and a coat, and went without waking hands or the boys, only taking with me a loaded single-barreled rifle, which I used for shooting small buck, but no spare cartridges. Now, in front of the gateway of the cattle kraal, shading it, grew a single big tree of the wild fig order. Passing under this tree, I looked and saw that the gateway was quite securely closed, as now I remembered I had noted at sunset. Then I started to go back, but had not stepped more than two or three paces, when, in the bright moonlight, I saw the head of my smallest ox, a beast of the Zulu breed, suddenly appear over the top of the wall. About this there would have been nothing particularly astonishing, had it not been for the fact that his head belonged to a dead animal, as I could tell from the closed eyes and the hanging tongue. What in the name of goodness, I began to myself, when my reflections were cut short by the experience of another head, that of one of the biggest lions I ever saw, which had the ox by the throat, and with the enormous strength that is given to these creatures, by getting its back beneath the body, was deliberately hoisting it over the wall, to drag it away to devour at its leisure. There was the brute within twelve feet of me, and what is more, it saw me as I saw it, and stopped, still holding the ox by the throat. What a chance for Alan Quatermain! Of course he shot it dead. One can fancy anyone saying, who knows me by repute, also that by the gift of God I am handy with a rifle. Well, indeed it should have been, for even with a small bore piece that I carried, a bullet ought to have pierced through the soft parts of its throat to the brain, and to have killed that lion as dead as Julius Caesar. Theoretically, the thing was easy enough. Indeed, although I was startled for a moment, by the time that I had the rifle on to my shoulder, I had little fear of the issue, unless there was a misfire, especially as the beast seemed so astonished that it remained quite still. Then the unexpected happened, as generally it does in life, particularly in hunting, which in my case is a part of life. I fired, but by misfortune the bullet struck the tip of the horn of that confounded ox, which tip either was or at that moment fell in front of the spot of the lion's throat, where it half unconsciously I had aimed. Result? The ball was turned and, departing at an angle, just cut the skin of the lion's neck deeply enough to hurt it very much and to make it madder than all the hatters in the world. Dropping the ox with the most terrific roar, it came over the wall at me. I remembered that there seemed to be yards of it, I mean of the lion, in front of which appeared a cavernous mouth full of gleaming teeth. I skipped back with much agility, also a little to one side, because there was nothing else to do, reflecting in a kind of inconsequent way that after all Sikali's great medicine was not worth a curse. The lion landed on my side of the wall, and reared itself upon its hind legs before getting to business, towering high above me, but slightly to my left. Then I saw a strange thing. A shadow thrown by the moon flitted past me. All I noted of it was the distorted shape of a great lifted axe, probably because the axe came first. The shadow fell, 
and with it another shadow, that of a lion's paw dropping to the ground. Next there was a most awful noise of roaring, and wheeling round I saw such a fray as never I shall see again. A tall, grim black man was fighting the great lion that now lacked one paw, but still stood upon its hind legs, striking at him with the other. The man, who was absolutely silent, dodged the blow, and hit back with the axe, catching the beast upon the breast, with such weight that it came to the ground in a loop-sided fashion, since now it had only one forefoot on which to light. The axe flashed up again, and before the lion could recover itself, or do anything else, fell with a crash upon its skull, sinking deep into the head. After this all was over, for the beast's brain was cut in two. "'I am here at the appointed time, Makumasan,' said Umslopogaas, for it was he, as with difficulty he dragged his axe from the lion's severed skull, to find you watching by night, as it is reported that you always do. "'No,' I retorted, for his tone irritated me. "'You are late, Bulalio. The moon has been up some hours.' "'I said, O oh, Makumasan,' that I would meet you on the night of the full moon, not at the rising of the moon. That is true, I replied, mollified, and at any rate you came at a good moment. Yes, he answered, though, as it happens, in this clear light the thing was easy to anyone who can handle an axe. Had it been darker, the end might have been different. But, Magumazand, you are not so clever as I thought, since otherwise you would not have come out against a lion with a toy like that. And he pointed to the little rifle in my hand. I did not know that there was a lion, Homslopogas. That is why you are not so clever as I thought, since of one sort or another there is always a lion which wise men should be prepared to meet, Magumazand. You are right again, I replied. At that moment Hans arrived upon the scene, followed at a discreet distance by the wagon-boys, and took in the situation at a glance. "'The great medicine of the Opnero roads has worked well,' was all he said. "'The great medicine of the Opnero heads has worked better,' remarked Umslopogas with a little laugh, and pointing to his red axe. "'Never before since she came into my keeping has Inkosikas that is, chieftainess, for so was this famous weapon named, sunk so low as to drink the blood of beasts. Still, the stroke was a good one, so she need not be ashamed. But, yellow man, how comes it that you, who I have been told are cunning, watch your master so ill? I was asleep, stuttered Hans indignantly. Those who serve should never sleep, replied Umslopogaas sternly. Then he turned and whistled, and, behold, out of the long grass that grew at a little distance emerged twelve great men, all of them bearing axes and wearing cloaks of hyena skins, who saluted me by raising their axes. "'Set a watch, and skin me this beast by dawn. It will make us a mat,' said Umslopogas, whereon again they saluted silently and melted away. "'Who are these?' I asked. A few picked warriors whom I brought with me, Makumasan. There were one or two more, but they got lost on the way. Then we went to the wagon and spoke no more that night. 
Next morning I told Umslopogaas of the visit I had received from the Induna, of the king who wished me to come to the royal kraal. He nodded and said, As it chances, certain thieves attacked me on my journey, which is why one or two of my people remain behind, who will never travel again. We made good play with those thieves. Not one of them escaped, he added grimly, and their bodies we threw into a river where are many crocodiles. But their spears I brought away, and I think they are such as the king's guard use. If so, his search for them will be long, since the fight took place where no man lives, and we burned the shields and trappings. Oh, he will think that the ghosts have taken them. That morning we trekked on fast, fearing lest the regiment searching for these thieves should strike and follow our spoor. Luckily the ox that the lion had killed was one of some spare cattle which I was driving with me, so its loss did not inconvenience us. As we went, Umslopogaas told me that he had duly appointed Lusta and his wife Monasi to rule the tribe during his absence, an office which they accepted doubtfully, Monasi acting as chieftainess and Lusta as her head Induna, or counsellor. I asked him whether he thought this wise under all the circumstances, seeing that it had occurred to me since I made the suggestion that they might be unwilling to surrender power on his return, also that other domestic complications might ensure. It matters little, Macumazahn, he said with a shrug of his great shoulders, for of this I am sure, that I have played my part with the people of the axe, and to stop among them would have meant my death who am a man betrayed. What do I care who love none and now have no children? Still, it is true that I might have fled to Natal with the cattle, and there have led a fat and easy life. But ease and plenty I do not desire, who would live and fall as a warrior should. Never again, mayhap, shall I see the ghost mountain where the wolves raven and the old witch sits in stone waiting for the world to die or sleep in the town of the people of the axe. What do I want with wives and oxens, while I have Inconsikas, the groan-maker, and she is true to me? He added, shaking the ancient axe above his head, so that the sun gleamed upon the curved blade and the hollow gauche or point at the back beyond the shaft socket. Where the axe goes, there go the strength and virtue of the axe, O Makumasan. It is a strange weapon, I said. Aye, a strange and an old, forged far away, says Sikali, by a warrior wizard, hundreds of years ago. A great fighter who was also the first of smiths, and who sits in the underworld, waiting for it to return to his hand when his work is finished beneath the sun. That will be soon, Magumasan since Sikali told me that I am the last holder of the axe. Did you then see the opener of roads? I asked. Aye, I saw him. He it was who told me which way to go to escape from Sulaland. Also he laughed when he heard how the flooded rivers brought you to my kraal, and sent you a message in which he said that the spirit of a snake had told him that you tried to throw the great medicine into a pool, but were stopped by that snake, whilst it was still alive. This, he said, you must do no more, lest he should send another snake to stop you. Did he? 
I replied indignantly, for Sikali's power of seeing or learning about things that happened at a distance puzzled and annoyed me. Only Hans grinned and said, I told you so, Baas. On we travelled from day to day, meeting with such difficulties and dangers as are common on roadless weld in Africa. But no more, for the grass was good, and there was plenty of game, of which we shot what we wanted for meat. Indeed, here in the back regions of what is known as Portuguese South East Africa, every sort of wild animal was so numerous that personally I wished we could turn our journey into a shooting expedition. But of this Amslopogas, whom hunting bored, would not hear. In fact, he was much more anxious than myself to carry out our original purpose. When I asked him why, he answered because of something Sikali had told him. What this was he would not say, except that in the country whither we wandered he would fight a great fight and win much honour. Now Umslopogas was by nature a fighting man, one who took a positive joy in battle, and like an old Norseman seemed to think that thus only could a man decorously die. This amazed me, a peaceful person who loves quiet at home. Still, I gave way, partly to please him, partly because I hoped that we might discover something of interest, and still more because, having once undertaken an enterprise, my pride prompted me to see it through. Now, while he was preparing to draw his map in the ashes, or afterwards, I forget which, Sikali had told me that when we drew near to the great river, we should come to a place on the edge of a bush veld that ran down to the river, where a white man lived, adding, after casting his bones and reading from them, that he thought this white man was a trek-boer. This, I should explain, means a Dutchman who has travelled away from wherever he lived and made a home for himself in the wilderness, as some wandering spirit, and the desire to be free of authority often prompt these people to do. Also, after another inspection of his enchanted knuckle-bones, he had declared that something remarkable would happen to this man or his family while I was visiting him. Lastly, in that map he drew in the ashes, the details of which were impressed so indelibly upon my memory, he had shown me where I should find the dwelling of this white man, of whom and of whose habitation doubtless he knew through the many spies who seemed to be at the service of all witch-doctors, and more especially of Tsikali, the greatest among them. Travelling by the sun and the compress I had trekked steadily in the exact direction which he indicated, to find that in this useful particular he was well named as the opener of roads, since always before me I found a practicable path, although to the right or to the left there would have been none. Thus, when we came to mountains, it was at a spot where we discovered a pass. When we came to swamps, it was where a ridge of high ground ran between, and so forth. Also such tribes as we met upon our journey always proved of a friendly character, although perhaps the aspect of Umslopogas and his fierce band, whom, rather irreverently, I named his twelve apostles, had a share in inducing this peaceful attitude. So smooth was our progress, and so well marked by water at certain intervals, that at last I came to the conclusion that we must be following some ancient road, which at a forgotten period of history had run from south to north, or vice versa. 
or rather, to be honest, it was the observant Hans who made this discovery from various indications which had escaped my notice. I need not stop to detail them, but one of these was that at certain places the water-holes on a high, rather barren land had been dug out, and in one or more instances lined with stones after the fashion of an ancient well. Evidently we were following an old trade route, made, perhaps, in forgotten ages, when Africa was more civilized than it is now. Passing over certain high misty lands during the third week of our trek, where, frequently at this season of the year, the sun never showed itself before ten o'clock, and disappeared at three or four in the afternoon, and where twice we were held up for two whole days by dense fog, we came across a queer nomadic people who seemed to live in movable grass huts and to keep great herds of goats and long-tailed sheep. These folk ran away from us at first, but when they found that we did them no harm, became friendly and brought us offerings of milk, also of a kind of slug or caterpillar which they seemed to eat. Hans, who was a great master of different native dialects, discovered a tongue or a mixture of tongues in which he could make himself understood to some of them. They told him that in their day they had never seen a white man, although their father's fathers, an expression by which they meant their remote ancestors, had known many of them. They added, however, that if we went on steadily towards the north for another seven days' journey, we should come to a place where a white man lived, one they had heard who had a long beard and killed animals with guns, as we did. Encouraged by this intelligence, we pushed forward, now travelling downhill, out of the mists into a more genial country. Indeed, the veld here was beautiful, high, rolling plains like those of the East African plateau, covered with a deep and fertile chocolate-coloured soil, as we could see where the rains had washed out at Dongas. The climate, too, seemed to be cool and very healthful. Altogether, it was a pity to see such lands lying idle and tenanted only by countless herds of game, for there were not any native inhabitants, or at least we met none. On we trekked, our road still sloping slightly downhill, till at length we saw far away a vast sea of bush veld, which, as I guessed correctly, must fringe the great Zambesi river. Moreover, we, or rather Hans, whose eyes were those of a hawk, saw something else, namely buildings of a more or less civilized kind, which stood among trees by the side of a stream, several miles on this side of the great belt of bush. "'Look, Baas,' said Hans, "'those wonders did not lie.' There is the house of the white man. I wonder if he drinks anything stronger than water, he added with a sigh and a kind of reminiscent contraction of his yellow throat. As it happened, he did. End of chapter 4 of She and Alan by H. Ryder Haggard Read by Lars Rolander